Our scripture this morning is taken from Luke, the 18th chapter, verses 18 through 30. Here now these familiar words. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternally life. Once upon a time, there were a couple of prophetic types, uh, two guys out fishing in the river near the side of the road, and they thoughtfully made a sign saying, the end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. And they took that sign and showed it to each passing car. There's one driver who drove by didn't really appreciate that, so he shook his fist and yelled out the window, leave us alone, you religious nuts. All of a sudden, the two prophetic type guys who were fishing heard this big splash. They looked at each other for a few seconds. One of the guys said to the other, you think maybe we should have just made a sign that said, bridge out? (laughs) Well, I can relate to the, or one of the characters in this uh, little story, and it's not one of the prophetic guys. It's the guy who ignored the danger ahead sign. So what danger might I be referring to? Well, for one thing, it's Mother's Day. Mother's Day touches a lot of emotions. Like all holidays, Mother's Day is sweet for some and painful for others. Mother's Day does indeed touch a lot of emotions. So on the one hand, we want to celebrate our mothers, but we want to be sensitive to those who find this day difficult. I'm not really sure how to do that. I might say something I shouldn't say or leave unsaid something that I should have said. That's why I say that there is danger ahead for the next several minutes. But there's another reason why the sermon I'm about to preach and you are about to hear is dangerous. Uh, Today is the second installment of our series on generosity, which necessarily involves money. Now, who in his right mind would preach on the topic of money on Mother's Day? Somebody didn't pay any attention to the danger when he saw it. Seems that 
one of you would have warned me about you know, the danger to come one way or another. So uh, talking about Mother's Day and money and the same sermon seems to be totally irrelevant. Unless, of course, you, brought, you bought your wife or your mom a, a cheap gift or you're expecting your mom or your wife to fix dinner for you when you get home, you know, to save money. You know, those may be a couple of ways that money and Mother's Day might overlap. But do Mother's Day and money intersect in a meaningful way in the scripture that we're investigating this morning? I believe they do. When we start to unpack the account of Jesus and the rich young ruler, we're going to be startled. We're going to be startled by three things. One, an observation, two, a question, and three, a slap in the face. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. I didn't hear any sighs of relief, so maybe I'll revert back to the literal slap in the face. Anyway, uh, let's start with the observation. Here it is. Money is incredibly good and incredibly dangerous. Money is just like fire. It can be wonderfully useful and yet terribly dangerous. Money can solve some serious problems in this life, but it can also distract you from what is really important. Money deceives you. It makes you think that you're secure. If you have a big bank account, you might think that money will take care of you in every situation, but it can't. Money can't solve problems like betrayal or grief or sickness or depression or wayward children. Money is incredibly good, but it is also incredibly dangerous. Money can make you feel like you don't need God. If your bank account is full of money, there's not as much of a need to depend upon God. And if it looks like you have a healthy balance in your goodness account, you won't see the need for the righteousness of God. You have plenty of your own. This is where the relevancy of the passage shines through. Most people in the world today regard themselves as you know, good persons. Their righteousness accounts have more than enough currency to reserve a place for them in heaven. At least that's the way it seems to them. The sentiment that comes with Mother's Day is enough for some people to confidently declare that their mothers are in heaven simply because they were mothers. I'm serious. I've heard this at more than one funeral. I'll be conducting a funeral for a, a, a woman, and uh, I've had you know, adult sons and daughters come to me and say, I know my mother is in heaven. These, these are on separate occasions. I know my mother is in heaven. So why? Well, she was my mother. And that ought to be enough to get anybody into heaven. I don't know whether they were speaking in jest or whether they really believed it. But I suspect that there may be more to truth than jest in that statement. But you know something? Even mothers need a savior. Even good people need a savior. That's what the story we're looking at today is about. Even those who might appear to have plenty of inherent righteousness do not have enough. The Apostle Paul says that our righteousness is to be regarded as filthy rags. 
So uh, this morning as we consider this, this story about this powerful, wealthy, authoritative young man who seemed to have it all, yet he realizes something is missing. Most of you are familiar with a statement by Blaise Pascal, the uh, renowned French mathematician and theologian, who said there is a God-shaped void inside all of us that only he can fill. The rich young ruler felt that void on the inside. It was as though he had reached the top of the ladder of success and then looked around to see that he was propped up against the wrong building. So he recognized that there was something in his life that was missing. And as he is standing there, uh, comparing the value of what he already has uh, to what is missing and that Jesus is offering, he's, he's, he's weighing the balance. He's, he's counting the cost. You know, to, to gain one, he will have to give up the other. Uh, Jesus doesn't give him the option of, of holding on to everything that he has and then just adding God onto his life. You know, eternal life is attractive. Uh, the thought that there will someday be a new heaven and a new earth and that God will make everything right. He will redeem the earth from the curse that we will live in a place where uh, there is no sin nor consequences of sin. That's got to be attractive to everybody. But the cost for many just seems too high. That's the way it was with the rich young ruler. He couldn't let go of his wealth. And so he turns away. Sadly, he hasn't given up any of his treasure, he is still holding on to all of his assets. And yet, he walks away sadly. Money promises satisfaction, but it can't deliver. Money is incredibly good, but it's also incredibly dangerous. So that's the observation. Now, let's take a look at the question that begs to be asked. If money is so dangerous, why are we drawn to it? That's a good question. The rich man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Well, you know the commandments. He lists them, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, honor your father and your mother. There's another mention of mother in the passage. But Jesus' answer should give you some serious theological heartburn because that's not the right answer according to what we understand the gospel to mean. Since when is the gospel or the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life and just obey the commandments? Is that the gospel? If that were the case, then was it really necessary for Jesus to come? And it's not just some guy on the side of the road, you know, maybe fishing by the river who gives that Answer, it's the Lord Christ himself. So let's think about this for a minute. We might think that Jesus should have said something like this. 
Now, I've come to die for you on the cross so that you can be forgiven. If you believe in me and trust in me, then you will be saved and have eternal life. Why didn't Jesus say that? Because the rich young ruler wouldn't have understood it. It would have made no sense to him. It's because he didn't think he had a sin problem. He was a good person. His you know, righteousness account was as full as his bank account. His cup was running over. Now, let's think about what he said. You know, all these commandments I have kept since I was a boy, he is saying. It's probably referring to uh, his bar mitzvah at age 13. Uh, Jewish boys, uh, the word bar mitzvah means you know, son of the law. And at that time, at, at age 13, a boy is considered to be a man in the sense that he is responsible to keep the law of Moses. And so this young man, this rich young ruler is saying, you know, ever since my bar mitzvah, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've kept all the commandments. Uh, but he still recognized that something was missing. So Jesus answered in a way to set him up, to show him his sin. The rich young ruler didn't really think he had any sin. So why would he need a savior? So when Jesus heard this man's list of all the commandments he had, he had kept, uh, Jesus adds just one more thing to it. He, in effect, is saying, is saying uh, you want eternal life, then sell all that you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. Now, why did Jesus say that? He never told anybody else that they had to sell everything that they had and give it to the poor and then come follow me. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if everybody did that? Have you ever had people come to you and say, you know, if you really were a Christian, then, you know, you'd sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And I'm a poor person. So, you know, I mean, can you imagine what chaos would ensue, you know, to the economic system if everybody sold everything and gave it all away? Now, I don't really think we have to worry about that happening. Uh, but it is kind of interesting or intriguing to, to, uh, to think about. But when the rich young ruler is uh, being challenged to do this, Jesus is speaking to his heart. Jesus is putting his finger on something in the man's heart, uh, not just the emptiness, but that which is reflective of the emptiness is that God is not there at the center. And so Jesus is telling him that uh, he's actually trusting in something else instead of God. Um, it's a good thing he didn't say that to everybody. Uh, what Jesus does, though, is he has this uncanny knack of being able to take his finger and put it exactly on our hearts to identify what it is that is keeping us from him. What is it that we regard as more valuable than God? 
It uh, could be a number of things, but it seems to be something different for everybody. Remember the story in John chapter 4 about the woman at the well? Jesus is passing through Samaria, and it's, um, thirst, he's thirsty, and so he, he stops by Jacob's well. It was uh, the time of day when most people had already gone to the well for water, and there was only one person there, a, a, a woman whose name we are not given, but we just know her as the woman at the well, and uh, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she is stunned that uh, Jesus, being a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink, because Jews and Samaritans really didn't have dealings with each other. And Jesus says, well, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would have asked him for living water, and he would have given it to you. Now, I want to compare the story of the rich young ruler and the story of the woman at the well uh, for, for just a moment. You know, they both have a hole in their hearts. And they both are looking at Jesus and aren't really sure who he is. You know, the rich young ruler looks at Jesus and he says, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of answering the question, Jesus, as he often does, responds with the question, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Are you saying that I'm God? Rukshan Ruler didn't really understand that that's who he was speaking to. Neither did the woman at the well. But Jesus uh, gets to the heart of the matter with the woman, and he says, well, go and get your husband, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. And she says, uh, well, I'm not married. I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you got that right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. This you have said truly, <laughs> I have no husband. And so she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah. <laughs> Keen insight there. Uh, Jesus is speaking to the emptiness. It, it's curious that Jesus didn't tell the woman to go and sell all that she had. Nor did he tell the Rukshan ruler. I mean, he, he, he wasn't poking him about uh, his relationship with women or uh, anything like that. What he was doing instead for each one is pointing to the area and their lives and their respective lives their respective lives where they had emptiness, where they had a hole in their heart which they were looking to fill, that only God could fill. But they weren't aware that that's what it was that they were looking for. Well, there is a contrast between the two characters here. The woman at the well uh, you know, runs and tells everybody in the village, uh, come see a man who told me everything about me. And the rich young ruler is there weighing in the balance? You know, I've got, uh, I've got success, I've got wealth, I've got authority, I've got all of this already, even though I've got this hole in my heart that I can't seem to fill some other way. But in, in order to fill that, then I'm, I'm going to have to, to give all of this away in order to get that. Isn't there some way I could have 
both? Isn't there some way I can have two masters? And, of course, we know the answer to that question. But it's interesting to see that this, that this man uh, worshipped money as his God. And so Luke says he became very sad, morose. It was staggering. He wanted God in his life. He obviously felt that something was missing. That's why he came to Jesus. But underneath his superficial confidence, the rich young ruler realized that he needed God or spirituality or something. But he only wanted God as long as God did not get in the way of his money. So Jesus forced him to see that nobody can obey the commandments. You can't obey the Ten Commandments. You can't even get past the first one. You shall have nowhere the gods before me. That's why Jesus told him about the commandments instead of what we would expect to hear today. There are no other gods but the one true God. God made you, sustained you, but there are a lot of things that you love more than him what Jesus is saying to the young man. Money, career, success, pleasure. You cannot possibly inherit eternal life by keeping the commandments. You need a savior. That's what Jesus is saying. He said that to the direction ruler. He said it to the woman at the well. He says it to all of us. You know, money is so appealing because it is a very convincing false god. It promises to give you identity and security and comfort and control and righteousness. It can make you feel good about yourself and give you approval in the eyes of your peers. But it can't save you because it is not the true and living God. Now notice that Jesus didn't tell the rich young ruler to cash in all of his possessions and make a big contribution to the Jesus of Nazareth Evangelistic Association. Jesus wasn't interested in his money. He didn't want his money. He just, he wanted to speak to this man's heart. And the way to speak to his man's heart was to go in and remove everything that had calloused that heart. And so that's why he is inviting him to sell all that he has so that his heart might truly be open to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find it interesting that when Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And... Then we see also here that it's obvious that the man's treasure was the material stuff. 
here again, you know, he's weighing in the balance, material treasures or spiritual treasures. And he compares the two. You can't have, you can't have, if he, Jesus tell, is telling him he can't have the spiritual unless he gives up the material. And again, he doesn't say that to everybody, only to those whose God is money. And so after a few moments of consideration, the rich young ruler realizes where his heart is. It is with his money, with his material possessions. And so he walks away from Jesus Christ. He walks away from the kingdom of God. And he walks away sad. That's precisely why money is dangerous. Money powerfully draws us to all that it can provide. It persuasively convinces us to walk away from God. But in return, it delivers only sadness. So, we've made an observation. The money is incredibly good, but it's also incredibly dangerous. We've asked the question, if money is so dangerous, then why are we drawn to it? It's a good question. Now it's time for a slap in the face. Are you ready for this? I'm not going to come down and you know slap somebody upside the head. Uh, I'm going to let the, the scripture do that for me. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's the slap in the face. If you don't like the metaphor slap in the face, maybe we can go with uh, you know, having cold water dumped on you. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the point here I'm, I'm wanting to get at is uh, that there is something drastic that happens with Jesus' words that is intended to wake this man up. And not just him, but for, but, but for all of us who are resting or trusting in our own goodness, our own righteousness. The next thing Jesus said was just as unsettling. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who, well... Those who heard it said, then, you know, who can be saved? Uh, you may have heard of the, uh, the gate in Jerusalem. Uh, the, on the door, there was this smaller door. Um, you know, the, those uh, doors to the city gates were, were massive. They were huge. You know, I don't know exactly how, how high, but you know, maybe 20 feet. Uh, it's monstrous size. Uh, but they had this, uh, so we're told, uh, this little door uh, down inside the door that uh, when the gates were closed up for the night, it's sort of like living in a gated community and you don't have the pass key or the, the, the password uh, and you couldn't get in. Uh, but, you know, you could get in this little little gate um, through the a door within a door, sort of like, you know, when you let your dogs and cats out, you know, you have this little pet door. It's sort of like that. And that was called the, the eye of the needle. And, uh, you know, a camel couldn't go through 
the eye of a needle, unless it got down on its knees and somehow, you know, kind of slithered through, then, then it could. And, uh, you know, that's been a popular um, commentary on what Jesus said here. But there, there's nowhere in archaeology or in history or, or anything uh, that brings any credence at all uh, to this door that was called the eye of a needle that a camel might be able to get through. Think of what Jesus is saying here. He's not speaking metaphorically here when he's talking about how difficult it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, that it's easier for the camel to get through the eye of a needle than that. I think what Jesus is saying is it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would he say that? It seems impossible. Well, it is impossible. And the, the disciple said, uh, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay, get that image in, in your mind that Salvation, entering the kingdom of heaven, inheriting eternal life, you know, whatever you want to call it, we're talking pretty much about the same thing. And common knowledge in the world today is that is yours if you are righteous enough, if you are good enough. And Jesus is saying, you've got about as much chance of getting in with your own righteousness as a camel could get through the eye of a needle. You know, we talk about, we talked last week about, uh, you know, the, the currency of uh, forgiveness, uh, the spiritual currency. And sometimes uh, we, we think that we can uh, convert one currency to the other. So uh, in the, the case of the rich young ruler, he was perhaps thinking he can convert uh, some of his um, currency of, of good works into the you know, spiritual currency. Uh, that is, if, you know, he had everything that was necessary. There was just one little thing left in his mind that was lacking, and he wanted to see what it was. He had no idea that Jesus would call for something radical like this. He thought it was possible for man pretty much to save himself. Therefore, he didn't really need a savior. What Jesus is telling us in his conversation with the rich young ruler, everybody needs a savior. Even good people. Even people who have all kinds of currency and all kinds of ways. I mean, even mothers. As wonderful as mothers are, we all need a savior. So this revelation, this slap in the face, this realization that you can't inherit eternal life unless Jesus gives it to you, uh, something that we all need. A revelation wakes you up, it opens your eyes. It gives clear direction for what to do. But I have a feeling that you don't feel like that's a slap in the face. That's not really a, you know, 
glass of ice water poured all over you. You've heard this before many, many times. So now I want to uh, tell you something that I think might startle you. So in the grand scheme of things, in light of what we've heard this morning about how you know, money is a, like a blessing and a curse, you know, it can do incredibly good things, but it's also incredibly dangerous. And if it is so dangerous, then why are we drawn to it? And then we, we need this, uh, this wake-up call, this slap in the face, this you know, cold water thrown in us. What do we have to do in light of what we've heard this morning? Here's my advice. Follow the rich young ruler. I'm serious. Some of you are looking at me as though you have been slapped in the face. This is the effect I'm going for. You see, there's more than one rich young ruler in this story. There are two. The first rich young ruler is the young man who had the conversation with Jesus. But there is a true rich young ruler here. When Jesus was speaking with the rich young ruler, um, he was only about 31 or 32 years old at the time. He was a young man. And as the eternal son of God, Jesus was infinitely rich. He owns the creation. He created it all. All glory and all authority belong to him. So Jesus is rich. He was young in his human body. And he's a ruler. He has, a, he has all authority. But here's the difference between one rich young ruler and the true rich young ruler that Jesus willingly gave away everything he had in order to follow God the Father's plan for salvation. Jesus not only gave up his glory, but as he moved toward the cross, he gave up his friends, his freedom, his clothing, and even the sense of his Father's presence and approval. Remember, just a few weeks ago, as we were talking about Jesus on the cross, you know, as, he, as he hung there, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. When we're talking about what Jesus gave, you know, when we talk about giving in the church, we're, you know, we invariably come back to, to the tithe, you know, 10%. Jesus didn't tithe. Can you imagine Jesus just giving a tenth of his life, giving a tenth of his blood? He gave until it killed him. He told the rich young ruler to give everything to the poor. And that's exactly who Jesus gave his riches and his life to the poor. We were in spiritual poverty and Jesus gave it all to us. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The reason God can be gracious is because Jesus was drained of all of his riches so that you could have forgiveness and grace and sonship. Jesus gives you the wealth that really makes you wealthy. You will go away sad if you have this wealth. And having the wealth of Jesus' forgiveness and love and grace and following his example is what enables you to be generous with your money. In the Old Testament, the benchmark, as I referred to earlier, was the tithe. 10% of your income. You know, there's a debate that goes on uh, within the, the church as whether uh, the, the tithe, which was um, the, the standard for the Hebrew people, um, but you know, does that apply to us since we are not um, part of the old covenant? Um, there's the argument, of course, that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek before uh, the, the law of Moses came. So, you know, he is the, uh, the all this was, you know, prior to the law. So, you know, perhaps uh, the, the tithe uh, is timeless. Um, there's another standard, I guess we might say, that we just give as God has prospered us. That is in Scripture. I'm, I'm not going to take time to debate one or the other. Just be generous. In light of what Jesus has done for us, let's be generous. It's really the, the, the message here. So, uh, in conclusion, after reading and studying this story, there are some things that emerge that are worth remembering. Here they are. Number one, everyone needs a Savior, even good people, even mothers. Number two, having wealth seems to make us stubbornly resistant to any transformation of life. Number three, the things that break down that stubborn resistance to transformation of life is generosity. We give not primarily because there are some clear needs that need to be met. The primary reason we give is to reflect Christ-like character. And nothing reflects Christ-likeness more completely than generosity. Let us pray together. Father, as we consider, as the old song says, out of the ivory palaces, our Savior came, it's impossible for us to really comprehend uh, how much uh, you, the Lord, uh, laid aside to come to us, to become one of us, to represent us in life and in death 
and in resurrection. You gave up everything, not just the, the riches that we might uh, begin to wonder about uh, the riches of heaven, the streets of gold and uh, such as that, but to become a human being, to become one of us with all of its limitations and its temptations. And you did that. You represented us perfectly, having never sinned. So you lived the death. You lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died. You represented us in life. You represented us in death. You gave everything for us so that we might have that which we all yearn for but have difficulty receiving because of what we can't let go of that stands in the way. And so this morning, Lord, uh, we ask that you remove whatever might be standing where you ought to be standing in the throne room of our hearts so that we might truly know of what you said to this rich young ruler and what you said to the multitudes who gathered on the mount to hear that famous sermon. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May our treasure, our heart, be found in you. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.